0: the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for ASHP's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast invites members to share their stories about their professional path, lessons learned, and how their experiences shaped who and where they are today. This is Daniel Koba of ASHP. My guest today is Dr. Joshua Robb. In 2013, at the age of 29, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. In his new book, Through the Eyes of Cancer, a compilation of his journal notes from that time, he describes his experiences frequently in vivid detail with the original diagnosis, treatment, and confronting PTSD after his cancer went into remission. Welcome, Josh, and thanks for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor and uh, it's uh, it's great to be here.
0: It, it really is good to to have you. And I, I just have to say as we start off, I was deeply touched by the book and uh, having had the chance to read it, I, I get the chance to work with you on a, a number of other fronts as well in, in your role as an HHP associate editor. So to have these insights it was powerful so thank you for sharing with the rest of us you know you start off the book with a quote from one of my favorite novels of all time all quiet on the western front can you read it for us
1: absolutely and um so that's really the start of the book here and i dare think this way no more this way lies the abyss it is not now the time but i will not lose these thoughts i will keep them shut them away until the war is ended My heart beats fast this is the aim the great the sole aim that i have looked of in the trenches that i have looked for is the only possibility of existence after this annihilation of all human feeling this is a task that will make life afterward worthy of these hideous years
0: what led you to select that quote to start your book with
1: part of the the journey that i had when i was uh, initially diagnosed with pulmonary tuberculosis and i was uh, sent home on home quarantine and uh, I was in the middle of July, and I'd been so enveloped in work that I hadn't really had the chance to read for pleasure. And I remember going to our bookshelf, and it was the first book that I saw. And I've been meaning to read it for years. And I finally pulled it out, and you know I, I think there's a lot of uh, parallels to what's going on because you know, in the book, it's World War One. He's basically locked in the trenches, can't go anywhere, and I was locked at home, although I can go places. Um, but it was a personal battle um, that he was encountering in the book, and it was a personal battle I was going through as well, and, and it really just spoke to me. And that one passage, I remember reading it, it's about three-quarters of the way through the book, and it just stuck. And it's one of those lines in a book that just, it sticks with you, and, and you always remember it. And as I you know subsequently got diagnosed with cancer, that, that line really, it really described what I was going through that you know I, I did want to remember it but i really just didn't want to deal with anything at the time
0: yeah so your book's a compilation of your journal notes uh did you keep a journal before before your cancer diagnosis i did and ever since high
1: school when i was I really like 14 15 years old i i've been journaling and it's just been my refuge it's been a way for me to get thoughts off my chest but also it really serves as a time capsule for me and it's a way that I can always go back and reflect and read and you know see the problems at the time at a, at a very pure vantage point that you know
0: didn't have any uh, filters for as the years went by so when you were journaling at during and you know you start the book off really when you were confronting uh, the TB diagnosis first. Uh, That's where you start off with your journal notes. But as you were journaling during that period of time, were you contemplating that this might be a book at some point?
1: Initially, I I, I did want it to be somewhat of a learning experience. And I, you know, I started day one of of TB treatment. That's where the first entry alluded that, know i want to chronicle my thoughts my feelings you know as as a pharmacist talking about the side effects and so i think initially i i did and i wanted to somehow you know go back to patient care whether it was medicine pharmacy nursing and i just didn't know what it was going to become at the time but it fit my passion of wanting to journal and then also as a clinician wanting to you know take notes of my progress on day to day
0: so you you started to notice changes in your health in January of 2013, right? I, I think I have that date cor- that time frame correct. Yep. And at the end of July, there was the the initial diagnosis of pulmonary tuberculosis. Can, can you talk about that time frame and what you were experiencing, and just what your life was like during just for during those six or seven months?
1: It was a pretty big roller coaster of symptoms and really confusion and and frustration and. January, 2013 I, is when the first symptoms started. And it was a, a cyclical process that went through every few weeks where it would consist of low-grade fevers, uh, drenching night sweats, extreme fatigue, and this, this odd prodrome feeling I had where it was, it kind of felt like, you know, like bugs crawling on my skin. Um, that always preceded the, uh, the fever. And it would happen for about a week or two, and then I would rest, and then it would go away for a few weeks, come back and we didn't really know what it was my physician Uh, my physical exam was normal multiple times and my lab work was normal and uh, i worked at the time at a benign hematology outpatient clinic at the detroit medical center and um, the hematologist who'd been practicing for 30 years he's like well let's look at your blood smear we'll put it under the microscope and you know see if anything shows." And I remember him looking down in the microscope and whispering under his breath he said this looks beautifully normal which at the time didn't help because um, the symptoms kept persisting and we finally settled on um, you know, an infectious mononucleosis mono and you know it, it kept recurring because I was being so stressed and she told me to just relax um, because everything was normal. Finally it came to you know July um, and the first time we actually had physical signs and symptoms and um, they decided to get a chest X-ray. And that's where it showed the mediastinal widening at the time. And at the time, the radiologist that was reading it was working with our county's leading TV expert for, for Wayne County in Michigan. And back in December, there was a few dozen of us that were exposed to a TV patient that flew under the radar. And she's like, this is classic nodal TB. Um, you need to go home. And you. I'm diagnosing you with TB. Let's get the sputums and let's start therapy. And just like that, that, it gave me an answer, but it also at the same time was odd because my wife, who we lived together, didn't have any signs and symptoms of any pulmonary infection. But it was a diagnosis and we went with it.
0: So you were, then you began to notice other changes such as Enlarged lymph nodes. And you said it was a diagnosis and you went with it. But given, given your knowledge and, and experience, did you at any point ever grow impatient with the medical team for not obtaining a lymph node biopsy sooner?
1: We did, and I did, um, or we didn't obtain a lymph node biopsy, but the impatience was kind of tempered with the fact that when I would rest, my symptoms would get better. Um, and with the enlarged lymph nodes it made sense that it could be mono and almost everyone is it's you know mono at some point in their life and but there was a discussion my um one of my attendings and i were having at the at the end of rounds and she said you know you need to consider this could be possibly lymphoma given your age um cancer is always at the end of a diagnosis whether we like it or not and um but it didn't make that much sense at the time because i kept getting better um it would just cycle back and forth so it it was frustrating, um, mostly because of my physical exam. There were no lymph nodes um, up until July that were palpable. Everything was normal, and the chest X-ray really showed that everything was in my chest. Everything was buried beneath my sternum. Um, but then in um, July, when I was in isolation for TV, that's when I had a right supraclavicular lymph node start to pop up like a grape. And um, at the time, we we're like, "Well, this one's easy to biopsy." we should take this out, we should culture it for TV, and then we should stain it also for, for lymphoma as well. And, and that really was, I think it gave me a lot of hope because one way or another, the answer to what was going on was gonna be solved. And the one time in my life that I was actually hoping I would have TB as well. <laughs> but that was a good day that we, we finally decided to uh, schedule the surgery and take
0: out that, that lymph node for, for biopsy. So, you know, that's a good segue into my next question, which was, you know, you alluded in the book to a valuable lesson that was learned when you were referred to a surgeon for a biopsy. And I have to say, at least for me as a reader, it didn't jump out at me immediately. What did you mean by that valuable lesson? What is it you were referring to?
1: I think um, it was the building metaphor about... I said, who is really right in this situation about, you know, what is going wrong with me and and how to properly diagnose since we were really riding on the quote unquote undifferentiated differential diagnosis, which we all know means what's going on. And, you know, the metaphor was there's an 80 year old uh, skyscraper that they want to transform to an apartment building. And the owner looks at three people and says, what's wrong with the building? You know, the mason looks at it and says these, these bricks are, you know, in, in dire need of replacement or repair to keep the integrity of the building. The iron worker, you know, says, nope, nope, the iron needs uh, to be redone to maintain its structure. And then the architect says, the guy who made this building was a lunatic. There's many small changes that need to get made. And it's all looking at the same building though. And in my sense, it was looking at me as everyone who was a specialist in what they do kind of had a sense of whatever they specialized in was what was wrong. The TB, pathologist thought it was TB. Um, the surgeon uh, that was doing my biopsy um, who performed many biopsies of lymph nodes and, and solid tumors said, this is lymphoma. Um, my PCP was still riding on the, the, the diagnosis that it was possibly mono. It was frustrating that everyone you talk to is specializes in what they do anchors in on what they think it should be and not what it can be. And that was, you know, what I was trying to get with the metaphor is who was really right in the situation.
0: Yeah. You know, it's something that jumped out at me during that time frame, uh, that time frame in the book um, and in your journal notes. And I I mentioned this to you at one point that I I was, again, I was struck by it. You had this focus for a period of time. On your contact lenses and rifampin and it's like you were doing this experiment and i was there what what was going on there in terms of just that whole uh, rifampin experiment with contact lenses
1: you know it, it's it's fun when you are your own patient because you can really do experiments on yourself as long as you're not screwing up your therapy and and i remember learning in school as, as i'm sure every pharmacist and you learn that taking rifampin will stain you know, everything, every, you know, whether you're urinating, your sweat, and if you wear contact lenses, that it will stain your contact lenses, a tint of orange or red. Um, You know, it's, it clearly makes your urine look like a highlighter coming out. That's, that's, you know, one thing that I think every patient would, admit. but at the time I had, I was wearing contacts and they were, it only had a few days left until I had to replace them. And I said, you know, let's just put this to the test and see if they really do stain it. And that would, my contacts in before I took rifampin, an hour after I took rifampin, after it peaks, um, you know, I, I would sleep with them one night see if that had any difference. And because I really wanted to say it, everything I tell my patients doesn't have any validity to it. And there was absolutely no staining whatsoever. And I, you know, I think I looked into it a little more, but I think it's just when it was the context was being made, contact lenses were much harder. I'm sure you know the plastic was a different kind of polymer. Um, it didn't work. I saw contact lenses. They can—they had their blue tint the whole time. And my end of one experiment had 100% confirmation.
0: <laughs> well, we can—we um, should encourage you to submit that case report. You—you—you <laughs> uh, you, you were brutally honest in your journal about what was happening with you physically and emotionally, and you share your reflections unabridged with the readers as you were contemplating the book. Did you, did it make you feel vulnerable at all that you were sharing some of your most intimate thoughts, including about being a father with the readers?
1: That was the biggest hurdle for me and really getting the book out. Whether I published it or not, I I wanted to complete it. And, you know, uh, in all honesty, this book was actually completed a couple of years ago. And it was really the last entry that I had before in the last part of the book uh, was before that was really in 2015. And so it had been done for quite some time. And I, I constantly toyed with the thought of, you know, should I make it public? Um, can, I, can, I, can I handle the stress of, you know, essentially putting yourself out there completely? And you know, this kind of goes back to the first time you and I met. Um, that was at mid year in 2016. And where uh, you asked me to write about my experience and reflection for AGHP. And, and it's it's a very I was honored and and humbled to be asked that. At the same time, that puts your story out in the open, and you can't really hide behind it. And at the time, I was suffering from PTSD, and and I knew that anytime something triggers, someone talks about the book, talks about my history, talks about my case, um, it's just out in the open, and I. I really fought with that for years, um, because it, it is a huge vulnerable sense of, of putting yourself out there with all your feelings, all your emotions. And and really, I, I did not want to leave anything out. That was the purpose of the book. So it, it was tough. It took a lot of years, I think, really to, for me to kind of bolster up the courage and enough to where I had more control of the PTSD, that I felt that this could be a benefit for clinicians family members, patients, anyone, um, while at the same time being able to control, you know, anything that would come back to really bite me, um, anxiety-wise.
0: Yeah. You know, along those lines, you you talk, again, in your brutal honesty, about having a small daily breakdown in the car on your way to work. And, you know, interestingly, you made reference to the, the 2016 mid-year, you, you went on to a win an award for your precepting pharmacy residents at that at that period in time how did you get through those days at work
1: the commute and the breakdown was it was not something i anticipated and you know i at the time i was we lived about you know 20 30 minutes outside of downtown detroit and uh, the daily commute was always a time of just you know reflection planning the day it was just downtime and you know, I think a lot of people appreciated that commute in the past year after COVID because it really is a time where you're to yourself, you can listen to audiobooks, you can listen to music. And I remember there were many days I just, it was quiet in the car. I didn't have anything on, no music. And I would sit there and just think, oh my God, I have cancer. I have something inside me that's trying to kill me. Um, and it was tough. And I would just have a breakdown literally on the way to work. And then, try to gather my composure as I got out of the car and walk in and begin precepting, uh, which kind of leads to the second part where, you know, work for me was a huge asset to, to normalcy. And one of my good friends that I was a uh, co-resident with at Hopkins, um, she ended up uh, specializing in oncology. And so her and I talked a lot when I was diagnosed and, and going through treatment. And she, one of the best pieces of advice that she offered me was, you have to establish a routine. You have to establish a routine that gives you control over your day and and makes it much more easier to handle. And work for me was something I thoroughly enjoyed. I have a passion for teaching and precepting. And I was very lucky that my director and my my coordinator said, you can continue to teach, you can continue to precept. Although every single day they were knocking on my door, like, are you okay? And, you know, it gave me a lot of change in how I do precept because at the time I was so neutropenic, I couldn't go to the floors. Um, so my residents, my students, they, they really became my eyes and ears. And you know, I always say there, there's a point in every preceptor's career where they, they kind of let go of the leash of their trainees. Um, they can't be the helicopter preceptor and, and they, you know, establish trust in their learners. And this was it because I physically couldn't go up there um, and it was also unique because at the time i attended and i thought of the idea to use uh, facetime for rounds, and so i was physically not there but you know virtually i was there and i was still able to pimp the residents and, and the students <laughs> and call people out and they would take my you know the ipad put it right up to their face i'm like what are you doing um, <laughs> and so it was taking what the situation when i had and making the best of it but you know as It was an important part of my life was to continue to teach um, because it gave me a lot of purpose of of what I did, but it also. took away from the whole cancer um, that was going on inside of me, it was it was a time for me to just discuss teach. uh, continue to learn and what I did, and it was a huge distractor of of what was going on, and and I was I was lucky, because my residents at the time and the students whether they liked it or not, got firsthand, you know, pick lines and side effects. And, um, and you know, part of the rotation was they had to flush my pick line because it had to be flushed every day with, with the saline and um, because pharmacy is hands-on and they're pharmacy residents. So it, I think it was good for all of us. We tried making the most out of, you know, whatever situation got thrown at us, but, you know, it was, it was very rewarding because uh, the residents that year and, and previously, Recommended that I do apply for the ASHP um, Pharmacy Residency Excellence Award. And, you know, I was, I was very honored that I was selected to receive it the year in 2016 as the new preceptor of the year. And, and a lot of it was just based on what I went through during that kind of horrific time, but, you know, kind of seeing the best out of what came out of that situation. So it was, it was, it was a very, uh, it was a strange dichotomy of, of having cancer, but then also doing something you, you really love at the same time.
0: Have your residents from that time read the book?
1: Yes, um, many uh, residents and past coworkers and students, and um, they, they've reached out in, in a lot of various ways. But you know, the, especially the ones that were with me that year and living through it, they kind of joke around with me because we would try to make humor in it as much as possible. You know, I, I come in looking like Uncle Fester with no eyebrows <laughs> and hair. and that's okay because I think you know, we were lucky that we had this positive outcome and, and they're able to joke with it. But a lot of people just didn't know that, you know, there was that much brewing beneath the surface and, you know, work helped because like I said, it was an distraction. but it, it also, I, I think I hit it extremely well because they did not know that it was that bad um, for most
0: days. You know, you, you alluded, you've alluded in, in this conversation and you've, discuss this in the book as well. And what jumps out to me is that in some ways, it's a must read for every clinician as it provides insights into the patient experience that are so real. You say, and I quote from the book, however, beneath that facade as a patient, I discovered it's not the 60 to 85% cure rate that is heard or internalized, but rather the inverse. The fact that I had a 15 to 40% chance of treatment failure, relapse, or the worst case scenario, death is all I thought about. Ultimately, is is that your hope for the use of this book, that clinicians and others can really see through the lens of a patient and understand that patient perspective and experience?
1: I hope that that's one of the goals that I had writing the book, and I hope that is something that is taken away from, you know, whether it's a clinician or a family member or even, you know, a patient being able to, to see that, yes, I'm thinking the same thing. And, you know, there are many patients that through support groups and during treatment, and being a patient advocate that I was able to talk to, and it's it's a similar mindset where, you know, it's not being pessimistic; it's it, they said it's being realistic. And I was extremely lucky that there was a high cure rate even for advanced stage Hodgkin's lymphoma. But you know, at the end of that sentence, when the oncologist told me, it's it's still at inverse; it's I still have this chance of dying of having a relapse or having a treatment failure and and that always was in the back of my mind um you know despite all the the positive news and you know the clear scan and you know hitting your last you know round of chemotherapy and you know essentially being a remission it's still there that you know you could relapse in two years and i think it's an important uh, mindset that should be taken away from clinicians that it is great when we have positive news to share with their patients, you know, the favorable prognosis, but also realizing that they aren't looking at it through that lens, they're looking at it through a realistic lens of what could happen if, um, and what if, what if, and, you know, I'm not one to always hunker down on the worst case scenario. Um, I, I try to you know, see some silver lining in the situation, but it it can't be avoided um, because it's not 100%. Um, and there's still that possibility
0: that could happen. So, you started at one point, I guess a little bit later on, to teach the, the patient experience lecture in the School of Pharmacy. And did so were did you, did you impor, impart those perspectives to the students as you were teaching that patient experience component? I
1: did. And um, I was really hesitant to, to take on that lecture because it's, and the the history is there's some faculty member at the College of Pharmacy at Wayne State where um, they've had either you know uh, you know some terminal or some chronic disease or an extremely terrible medi- medication related event happen, and, and they would share their experience with the class. And you know it was easily one of the most memorable lectures we had in school because it's personal. And I think you know pharmacists as as we we got it because it's it's a personal profession. We're dealing with patients' lives, and and when the faculty member moved, um, who was doing it, and then got, I got asked to, to share my case. And again, was that am I okay sharing my story not with one or two students that I'm precepting on rotation now, but a hundred students from a podium? Um, and it was a huge step, along with I think the reflection publication moving forward. And, and when I thought of how I could prepare for that lecture, it, it really was just coming from the heart. I just went up there and and told my story and and at the end of the lecture I said, this is, you know, important to know that patients are thinking the crazy questions. They're thinking off the wall questions. They're thinking everything that you aren't really trained <laughs> or expecting. And that's okay. And it's, you know, it's okay to to address those questions and those concerns and those needs of the patients because, you know, until you're kind of put in that situation and for myself included, I, I didn't know that was really what was going through a lot of patients' minds.
0: Well, you know, and it's interesting because there's also, I guess, this additional layer of presumptiveness that we could add on. And that is, well, the patient who's a highly educated, highly trained, skilled professional, the, the physician, the pharmacist, the nurse who comes in, their experience might be different than the that individual who's not trained in one of the the health disciplines but but I imagine that that was sort of part of the message to your students it really doesn't matter what your day job is this is a diagnosis that that you are confronting
1: absolutely and one of the strange things that I experienced when I was going through it is you're putting that patient chair or in the examination room or you're getting infused your confidence as a clinician where you know you you may have seen you know terrible traumas in the ed or at the bedside for for strong cases it it completely strips away and you are just vulnerable sitting there as a patient and you know you know your knowledge but at the same time you're you don't know what to expect and i think you know we're, we're on the other side and we're treating patients in our mind we have a we're going to expect this outcome. We're going to use this course of therapy, and and we know from trials that it should end up that way. But when it's you, it's just personal, and it's no matter. Like you said, it's 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 a good point that no matter your background, it completely strips away everything that you know, um, and you're placed in this vulnerable position where you just depend on everyone around you.
0: You said something in the book that really jumped out at me, and it's sort of, it really relates to this whole discussion of understanding the patient experience and perspective. And you said life after cancer has been desperately hard to deal with. What did you mean by that when, as you were journaling that at the time?
1: That was after I completed chemotherapy and um, I was given the label of having a complete remission. And it was something I yearned for. It was something that I I prayed and everything and hoped for, and I was there, but at the same time, I I didn't know how to get back to normal. I didn't know what normal was. Um, Every time that I felt off, um, which was really, I think the best symptoms for lymphoma, since it's like a common cold, I thought it was coming back and I fell into PTSD pretty quickly after you know having complete remission. And it was hard because there was no endpoint. I knew I would take 12 rounds of chemotherapy. I knew there was an endpoint. I knew that it's after that twelfth round I would either have relapse or remission. I didn't know what to expect afterwards. And and it was strange falling into that PTSD, because, you know, and I think there was something else I said in the book where it's, you know, the, the, the accomplishment of remission is just the harbinger of the fear of relapse. It, you made it through this huge battle, but now it's just, what's gonna happen if it happens again? And the life was just desperately hard to figure out what was normal, because um, I had no sense of what normal was at that time. And, and I couldn't picture what normal should be at the time as well. Um, So it was it was hard um, because I I just felt lost. And although I quote unquote won the race, I, I really didn't know where to go afterwards.
0: So as you as you start in your journal to begin to to introduce your struggles with PTSD, you said, you know, you were telling people you told your family and friends that everything was fine, even though it wasn't. And and I, I apologize for asking you this because it's a bit personal, but did that did that include your wife, Crystal? Were you trying to maintain that front for her as well?
1: I did. And the, the big reason was I felt guilt is probably I think the best word to say, is that for you know almost a year I, I had put my family, my friends, those closest to me, strangers, acquaintances through literally hell. Um and they were at my side the entire time and and I didn't want to put them through more. I didn't want to ask them for more. Um, so I really just put on a happy face, and and on the surface, I think uh, appeared fine to a lot of people. And the only real outlet was a journal at the time, where I would just pour it out and say, it, "It's clearly not normal anymore."
0: So your journal was your most intimate sounding board.
1: It is, and you know, even through high school, when I was doing it and through this experience, it. It really has just been almost like a, a fictitious person that you can kind of just pour your emotions to, it's like a counselor. And then at the same time, you feel a relief when you're done. And then being able to go back and reread it again, and I think reflect on you know what you're going through is, is I think one of the best things of journaling. But um, it, it really, as you see from the pages in the book, there really was nothing that I left out. I was extremely open, Frank. <laughs> And, uh, and detailed and what was going through my mind at the time.
0: So it was interesting to me that you were somewhat elusive as you were journaling about your work with therapists. You made a few references mm-hmm. here and there, but that wasn't something that there were long segments on. And was that purposeful?
1: Wasn't it necessarily purposeful? I, I eventually uh through my oncologist uh recommendation uh went to um uh, as a social worker who also served as a counselor uh for cancer survivors and it was at the point of close to a year after remission where i just i i needed the help i, I couldn't express any more emotions to people um i couldn't you know, ask my wife who i was you know periodically asking and bringing up the same things and um so through the recommendation of my oncologist went and saw this counselor and it was probably one of the best things i could have done and i think it's one of the resources that one the world's in desperate need of of, of more therapists and, and counselors um but it brought more attention and light to the ptsd and and how powerful it, it really just takes grasp and takes hold of your life and you know she was an extremely positive resource for me for how to overcome a lot of the emotions, how to take control of what was going on. And it was through her advice that um, she actually recommended doing the class lecture. And we talked about writing the reflection and one of the ways to overcome PTSD or or any anxiety really is slow repeated exposures um, to where it almost necessarily desensitizes you. And that was to the effect of why I wanted to share my story was I felt more control if I was able to tell it. And the journals were just an excellent source where it was unfiltered, Um, it wasn't revised and it really told the story as it happened. And, you know, I I think the therapist uh, definitely helped me overcome a huge hurdle in getting over and having control of the PTSD, but um, not purposeful to be elusive. She she certainly was, uh, uh, saving grace as I was going through
0: um, getting back to normal. It seems to me that there's an added dimension to this, Josh, because subsequent to your experience, there has been a real focus in healthcare at large. the The National Academies of Medicine focusing on well being and resilience, and within pharmacy, there has been a concerted effort. and I just wonder if you if you rely upon or build on your experiences subsequent to your remission and your experience with PTSD and, as you just described, a, a very productive relationship with a counselor. If you've had discussions with colleagues about well-being and re- resilience in, in this environment that we're, that we exist in now.
1: I have, and, you know, even going back prior to the pandemic, you know, when I served as a program director, it was it was really coming to the forefront with residency training, and you know, preceptors and program directors were put into the seat of how are you supposed to necessarily keep well being of your of your residents, make them resilient, which is something you know you can build over time, but it's not something you can just inject into someone, um, and at the same time maintain your own well-being because you're shouldering the the responsibility of of those that are talking to you and I think this past year really past year and a half I would say really kind of put that in the perspective of of taking care of yourself mentally um and physically and you know for a lot of health care that are still working you know in the inpatient in the hospital and the front lines they haven't had a break it, it's they really never had a uh, work from home. Um, they continued to do their job and it, it is clearly taken its toll as you know you can read from numerous editorials and opinions and pieces that nurses and physicians and pharmacists are writing I, I have a, a fear that in the next you know couple of years if this pandemic begins to calm down there's going to be a huge surge of PTSD from healthcare workers um, overcoming what's going on right now and and the need for, counseling, well-being, resilience uh, is going to be at you know, an all-time high for for us to continue to move forward and to build back empathy and compassion into our care. So I, I think it's it's something I, I build on anecdotally in my discussions with any of my colleagues. Um, you know and I always took that uh, as one of my leading precepting teaching pearls is to teach from anecdote. Um, it shows who you're teaching that you went through something similar. Um, or if that's similar, you can relate at some level, and that you're human, and these things happen. And I, you know, I hope that you know the well-being of our profession and and healthcare in general is maintained because it's it's definitely taken a big hit in the past year and a
0: half. Well, that's that's really a good lead into another question that I had for you, and you made reference a few minutes ago about normal and looking for normal after you went into remission and and you talked about this a lot in your journal notes and uh, fast forwarding eight years and um and what we've seen with COVID 19 where have you personally uh been challenged again about finding normal in this this environment that we're we're living in today
1: it certainly has um and, you know, a lot of my work now is work from home. And, you know, so it, it's a change from being really uh, on you know, the front lines of, of patient care for over a decade and then and working from home. So the one thing I did learn from, you know, going through that change and, and all that happened after chemo was normalcy really is just a very relative term. It will constantly change as you age and as you encounter challenges. and you know, whatever the world decides to throw at you and, you know, what you anticipate as normal isn't always going to be normal. And, you know, I think this past year and a half has definitely shown that is that things can be extremely strange on on a worldwide level. And we want normalcy, but, you know, when we come out from all this, it's going to be a new normal. And I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to adjust to what normal is versus what normal used to be. And And I think, you know, I I was happy to go through that experience and reflect on it now because it it was a big change and an acceptance that I had to take that the only constant of change is change. Things will continue to change all the time.
0: You know, as a journal editor, I'm never supposed to say I have a favorite article or <laughs> something that rises to that, that at least to a list of favorites, but I have to say you wrote a reflection piece that you've uh, mentioned as we've talked today that is among my favorite HHP pieces during my tenure as editor, and it was de- entitled A Life Undefined by Cancer. Have you achieved that?
1: I feel that I have, and it's not a complete 100% And I, I realized that it's not going to be a hundred percent, but when I wrote that piece, that was the one thing that I wanted to take away was who I wanted to be, what I aspired for before I was diagnosed. It was the same after and cancer was just a chapter in that story. It's not what I wanted to define me in my life and you know, it seems. You know, counterintuitive that, you know, I wrote a book about through the highs of cancer. And, and, you know, my hope was that it would provide perspective to anyone uh, who wishes to read it. But, you know, the the point of the book and the purpose was to provide a perspective of one, what patients go through and two, the cancer is not defining them. Um, It is a huge part of their life, but it is something that they can decide whether they want to forget. Um, or where they want to control and I'm very humbled that it's one of your favorite articles um, from uh, the journal and it was something that it took, it took a few months for me to uh, really come to the confidence of writing, but it was also an important lesson for me at the time that, you know, I was only two years out um, from having my last dose of chemo and and I was still in that window of relapse where you have five years from your last dose. where you have the possibility of relapse. And and it was an important uh, inflection point for me um, because it it gave me something that I could look at the past and I could decide whether or not I wanted it to be part of my future or something I could teach and learn from and move forward with.
0: It's funny, one of the things that um, I discovered in reading your book is that some of our commonalities ranging from a love for Fitzgerald to a um, the ability to appreciate um, uh, Blanton's bourbon. But I also noticed a commonality in terms of something that I describe as, as an old soul. And, you know, as I read in some of the things that you talked about and. Even when you were in your late 20s, you were extremely cognizant of the passage of time, which is something else that I think about a lot as well. And you wax nostalgic for earlier times. Do you, do you think of yourself as an old soul? I
1: do. And, you know, I have, I have a very close friend that also journal as well. And, and we had these conversations a lot. Why are we so stuck on nostalgia and? A, our memories of the past and you know having a journal that is a time capsule that you can go back to at any point and reread a memory is is you know just a, a nostalgia lover's dream but you know I, I i think we we remember the the memories that we want to and you know i, I wax nostalgia all the time of, of a lot of the good times i you know i do remember the, some of the bad times but i remember how i got over it and how i i rose above it so i you know, from from having that kind of mindset in my teens and my twenties, it, it's it's helped me get through a lot of hard times. But it's also let me very open to thinking about what uh, the future is open to. So it's it's something that I, you know, I I, I continue to um, hold very dear moving forward is that mindset. And, you know, I've always said, yeah, I'm, I'm 37 now, but I'm in the you know body of a of a 60 year old. Um, <laughs> just I, I feel like I, thinking of those thoughts all the time is just giving me a lot of wisdom on how to move forward. And, you know, anyone that, that, you know, is thinking about journaling or, or thinking about those things, I always say it's, it's, it's always going to have a positive outcome because one, you, you can self-reflect on, you know, what's going through your mind, but also learn from the process moving forward. So a few of those entries are on Blantons, Like you said, it's, it's, a, it's, my favorite bourbon as well, um, but I got very good into, uh, or, very close into learning the history of Fitzgerald and Hemingway as well. And and they would journal habitually while they're writing at the same time. And, and it really helped them, they said, to, to center their writing and to, to focus their pieces because it was able to kind of blow everything off their mind that they needed to, and then allow them to focus um, once they were done on their, on their work. So it's, I think, you know, maybe a little bit of them influencing me, maybe a little bit of something else, but um it's something that uh, i yes i have an old soul i will i will agree with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well did you did you recommend that your residents consider journaling is that something you recommended to your residents when you were precepting and were a program director
1: i didn't um you know there, there's so much that has to go into um yeah, accreditation standards for ashp it's it's i i often held just kind of a verbal open door policy for my residents that if they needed to, they could vent, express their emotions, uh, have a, a debate. But the one thing we did uh, introduce when I was uh, program director was a mentorship program and where one of our residents had to choose someone who wasn't their coordinator or director as uh, their sounding board or mentor. And, and I think, you know, that that person really kind of served as kind of like an open journal to them um, because, you know, the 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 positive response from our residents at graduation every year from having their mentors is nearly universal that this person just kind of helped me through a lot of hard times whether it was well-being that or um, you know just being the the person that they could kind of open up their emotions or thoughts or ask difficult questions to so um, there were there was only a handful of residents that you know were that open and personal saying they, they did journal or they did right. Um, I think they're. I gave them enough work to do, so they didn't have much time to thread it.
0: <laughs> well, I was. I was thinking about that when I was contemplating the question. So, one of your highest priorities as you confronted your diagnosis was your ability to be a father. And um, now, you and Crystal have two daughters. Is that right?
1: That's correct. And you know. I, Reflecting back on, you know, when I was diagnosed, it's it's almost uh, today, it was August 19th, and the two questions that ran through my head immediately was, am I going to die and am I going to be a father? Because um, at the time, 29 years old, when I was diagnosed. Um, we graduated pharmacy school together. We were thinking of starting a family. We had been out of school for a few years. We owned a home and it's It was something that was extremely important to us and we didn't know at that time that it was going to be possible and you know we were blessed and very fortunate that a few years uh, later uh, we have two daughters one who's five and one who's three and the five-year-old actually had her first day of kindergarten today so it's it's amazing how fast time is flying that you know i remember the day she was born and here she was you know going to kindergarten at school so it's you know the three of them my wife my two daughters they are the three most important people in my life. And, you know, even though they weren't born when I was going through chemo, my wife was there, but they're, they're the people that I would have, you know, fought to the ends, you know, to, to stay alive for.
0: Well, congratulations and enjoy every moment with them. And, uh, heck it's going to soon be time to be home from kindergarten and hear all about that first day. Josh, I want to thank you for Contributing first, starting with AJHP, telling us about your experience with the reflection piece, A Life Undefined by Cancer, and then for writing a book. That is a compilation of your journal notes that I that uh, as pharmacists I think we can really uh, learn a great deal from in terms of the patient experience. And for talking to me today, I, I really consider it an honor um, that you've been willing to to let me in and um, have opened up and talked about so many of your experiences, which I I know I have. A sense of how difficult they were so thank you so much for joining me today to to have this conversation and to discuss your journey
1: thank you for the opportunity and it's 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 my honor it's my pleasure and and you know i i said it's it's my hope that it just provides another perspective for us as clinicians and and make us better you know providers um, for the patients that we do care for
0: absolutely so to our listeners i want to say join us here at ash official and the practice journeys podcast as we learn about how pharmacy leaders seek out grow and evolve during their careers if you've enjoyed this podcast please share it with your colleagues family friends and via your social media of choice josh rob one more time thank you so much for joining me today thank you Dan. thank you for listening to ashp official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare.